and the way that we've used words like the gospel or lost or sin as weapons to shame or scold or oppress or repress other people. What we're seeing there is Jesus's own teaching coming alive in front of our eyes. This really nasty, rotten fruit telling us that we should actually go back to the roots, the meanings, the the presuppositions of these words, and think about them afresh. Jonathan Merritt is the author of a brand new book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. He's also the author of more than 3,000 articles from USA Today, BuzzFeed, The Atlantic, Washington Post, New York Times. Uh, he is a, an energetic and eloquent writer and person. And my conversation with him was so, I mean, I, I could have gone on for hours. Uh, and he moved from the Bible Belt to New York City. And what he, one of the first things he found was that no one had any idea what he was talking about when he would talk about God. The words he used were not the words anybody understood even. So that led him on a, a journey of discovering uh, the certain parts of our language when it comes to spirituality, faith, God, are dying out. And so this book was is his journey and his thoughts about how to revive uh, this language and this faith uh, in an honest way. Uh, and it is just gorgeous. So enjoy this conversation and then go out and get his book, Learning to Speak God, from scratch. Friends, welcome to This Good Word. Uh, I'm here with Jonathan Merritt, live from New York. Well, not live, but you are from New York City. Uh, how are you, Jonathan? I'm doing well. How are you? Man, I'm doing great. And it's it's good to have you on. As we were just chatting before, um, we, we share a friend and agent, uh, Chris Farabee, who is wonderful, just a beautiful person. Um, and so, you know, I just already feel like I know you. Um, but this book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. Um, I have a bunch of questions about that before, but, but before we get into that, my first question is, what was like the, I always love this, like what was the, what was the first working title that you had for this idea? Uh, it was this title. No was way. Learning, I kid you not. It was learning to speak out from scratch. I have never, uh, ever, ever in the past, uh, ever had a book that kept its title. Um, but I hatched this out and, you know, I had had so many, uh, I, I'd written books before and the titles were always changed. The cover designs were always horrific. And so I went into this saying two things. One, I will have the title that I want. And two, I will have the cover design that I want. And so I kept my advance. And at any point I could say, I will mail you back the advance yeah. if this is not what we keep. So, uh, luckily though, my publisher didn't want to change that. Yeah. They, they, they did change the, the subtitle. And so we, we kind of, uh, went, uh, back and forth, back and forth with, uh, the subtitle a little bit. I don't remember what it was to begin with, but, uh, the title itself never changed. Wow. That is, that is phenomenal. That, that does not happen with me. I mean, I am, I'm a terrible titler. Like I will, <laughs> I will put something out and then like, I mean, just many times, even, even before we get to the publisher, Chris will be like, ah, no, 
No, <laughs> that's just not. I don't like that. Love the little. What was, yeah. What was the original title for Hole? <laughs> oh, is this going to be good? Yes. The Geography of Wholeness. Oh, okay. Okay. I don't, exactly. I don't hate that. No, it's I don't boring. That. I mean, I'll tell you this, though. I'm I'm the geeky reader, so yeah, I'm yeah. outside of the mainstream. So yeah. if it appeals to me, if it appeals to me, it may not be great. You know what it reminds me of is uh, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor. Oh, you know, wow. An altar, an altar in the world. The subtitle, I think, was The, the Geography of Faith or something to that effect, which I, I liked. But, well, I but like I think, her. I think Cole's better. Well, it, and, and finally we got to it. I do, too. The original idea was going to take you know, sort of mount, like the geography of scriptures, mountains, valleys, Egypt, all these different places that are metaphors for all these things that you go through, which whole became. Um, but it was just like, hey, let's, let's not have the word geography in the main title, maybe in the, maybe in the sub, but not the main uh -huh. title. <laughs> um, okay, so Jonathan, you moved from the south to New York City and what what surprised you the most when you got there? And I'm not even necessarily talking so much about, I know, you know, you get into the book about about language, but but like coming from the South and, and even the Southern Baptist sort of heritage that you have moving to New York City, what what were some of the things that surprised you at first? Um I definitely um I definitely was surprised that it was friendly. Yeah. You know, uh, New York very much has a neighborhood feel. Yeah. Um, once you get out, you know, people, there are people who are like, oh yeah, I've been to New York so many times and they come here thinking they're like, uh, New York pros, but <laughs> they're, they really just are very, um, well, uh, informed about tourist traps because they've, you know, they've stayed in Midtown and they've yeah. got their favorite like diner that literally yeah. no New Yorker even knows yes. exists. Yes. And so it's the way, you know, they'll be like, Oh my gosh, yeah. Don't you know this place? And it's like, no, I don't. That's mm -hmm. like, you know, it wasn't a travel guide, but we, nobody eats there. So, um, once you get out of that, you know, it's like, it would be like if you went to, you know, Six Flags, and you said, I've been to whatever city Six Flags is attached to, you know, it, yeah, when, yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah. that's sort of like Midtown. But once you get away from our Six Flags, if you will, it's super friendly, super kind. People are from all over. People are hungry mm -hmm. for connection, yeah. hungry for community, hungry for conversation. Yeah. And uh, I was really surprised by that. I thought I would just kind of come here and live in my own universe. And it's utterly impossible to do that in New York. Uh, that's fascinating. I mean, here in Minneapolis, it, it's so weird, but it, that, that's, that Six Flags thing would be the Mall of America, like the, this yeah, huge. Right. And it's, it's horrible. I haven't been there in years. I mean, it's just this horrible, huge place. But everyone that is not from here wants to like, hey, can we go to the Mall of America? I'm like, no, I'm not going to take you to the Mall of America. I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, no. Um, okay, so you are a prolific writer, so many things. What, what made you land, uh, or, or get passionate about writing, um, about this? Well, it was in part the move. Um, you know, I had written, um, three books mm -hmm. by the time I was 30 
And I, you know, I know now what I didn't know then, which is a 30 year old just doesn't have 150,000 words of wisdom. <laughs> and so I had already given to the world much more yeah. than I had to give. I, I had a negative balance. I was, I was in the red. So I decided I'm not doing it anymore. You know how this is, you oh, know, yeah. the Christian industrial complex, they're like, turn a book out every two years, every two years, every two years. And then I just said, I'm not doing it. I'm okay. not doing it. And and when I moved here, I really put down the pen. And mm -hmm. honestly, I wasn't 100% sure I'd ever write a book again. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, when I moved to New York, I ran, as I say in the book, I ran into this language barrier mm -hmm. and I could not speak God. Mm -hmm. And it was a shaming um, anxiety inducing experience because I, first of all, I was raised in the church. I'm a PK mm -hmm. and you know, I, I was raised in a, in a, uh, an evangelical cultures, which, you know, as you know, has roots in fundamentalism. So it's very pietistic and sort of workspace though it purports to be the opposite. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and so I thought one of the ways that my spiritual stature is, um, measured is by the ability to speak God and the frequency with which I talk about my faith. Mm. And so when that plummeted, I felt like not a very good Christian. Mm. Uh, beyond that, here I am, I'm a writer who writes about faith and culture. People pay me to do this and they pay me to write, you know, it's not like I'm writing for like, you know, your daily truth, 365 devotionals, <laughs> you know, newsletter, I write for the general market. Yeah. And so writing for secular outlets, they expect me to be able to kind of translate. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing it, I've been successful. And then what I realized was it's, it's a lot easier to write about post-Christian culture than it is to live in a post-Christian mm -hmm. culture. Yeah. And uh, it's really sent me on this journey uh, to figure out what was going on with me. But then when I realized my personal problem was actually a cultural crisis, mm -hmm. I said, okay, it is time to pick up the pen again. This is, this is worth writing about. Yeah. And you, and you did research. I mean, you, um, joined the Barna group and essentially about how often do people have significant spiritual conversations about God? And when I read the fi findings, I, I was actually pretty shocked. And I feel like I'm sort of in tune with, with what's happening. Clearly, I'm not. Um, but talk a little bit about what you found and what was surprising. Well, what I found was, uh, well, I found two things. One before the Barna research was, uh, you know, these days, everything is like the six degrees of Google. <laughs> so everything goes back to Google. And yeah. this goes back to Google. Google and I believe it was 2010, released uh, a, a, a searchable database called the Google Ngram Viewer. And it basically, what they did was they compiled uh, all of the books that have been published in the English language, going back to like the 1500s. And now they've started to incorporate all kinds of things, you know, journals and uh, magazine articles and whatnot. And it's searchable. So you can actually search word usage at any point in modern history, anywhere you can find an internet connection. Wow. And now you've got people who've kind of poured over this, analyzed it, quantified it, and made some conclusions. Here's what we know. We know that um, religious and spiritual words 
uh, have been in massive decline in the English-speaking world since the early to mid-20th century. Mm -hmm. So all of the words that give us meaning as Christians, the, the words that we draw from to explain the phenomenon that, that we experience at conversion mm -hmm. or uh, this, the, these kinds of phenomena that associated with spiritual formation, those words, the, the tools that we use for expression are disappearing. They're vanishing. Hmm. On top of that, this, all of these words that shape us as Christians are disappearing. And it, it's, it's not just big, meaty theological words like, um, you know, sanctification or atonement. Uh, those words are disappearing, which you would expect. It's just also basic moral words. So the word grace, uh, courage words, compassion words, kindness words, almost all the words uh, in the fruit of the spirit, all of those words are decreasing by 50% or more, have decreased by 50% or more in the last 50, 70 years. They're vanishing from the English language and we're only now realizing it thanks to the big Google. So that was sort of one trend that, that made me go, oh my gosh, what's mm -hmm. happening here? I'm, I'm going to take it a step further. So I conducted a survey with the help of Barna Group of a little over a thousand Americans. And I began to um, ask through Barna, how often do you have spiritual or religious conversations? What I found was is basically nobody is talking about these things. Only 7% of Americans say they, have, they, they speak God on a regular basis, which is only once a week. 93% of Americans in a given week won't, won't speak about God, won't speak about faith, won't speak about spirituality. And this is shocking because uh, about 7 out of 10 Americans claim to be Christian. Mm -hmm. So we claim we're, you know, if you, you care about your children— so you talk about your children, you care about the Yankees, so you talk about the Yankees, but you care about your faith and yet you will not talk about your faith by and large in America. When you look at Christians, the problem's not much better. Practicing Christians, that's like the real religious folk, right? People who show up for church on a Sunday on a regular basis. Only 13% say that they have a spiritual or religious conversation on a regular basis, about, about once a week. So. That means you go into your church and only the holiest, most uh, committed people show up that day. Well, if you look around you, seven out of eight of those people will walk out of that door and will not utter a word about God, faith, or spirituality until they walk back in that door the next week. And that to me, I said, oh my gosh, something is happening here. Something has broken down where we have normally this connection between passion and articulation, that connection has been um, fractured. It's fritzed out, something has happened. And I wanted to know what, what had gone wrong, what could be done about it, if anything. And uh, that's really what this whole project is about. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly, um, those are some surprising statistics, especially considering if you just look at folks who claim to be, you know, Christian. Um, so uh, one of the things that I actually, before I started reading your book, I just opened it up and I opened it up to the chapter, uh, chapter six, which is called A Way Forward. And immediately you get into something that I have great passion for, which is the Hebrew language and the way that words are used in the Jewish tradition and even in the Hebrew Bible. 
Um, and so, so talk about what you found there in terms of how words are malleable, much more malleable than most, you know, Americans or 21st century people think about. Yeah. You know, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't really wrestled with, um, with, uh, Hebrew since seminary. Yeah. And uh, I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination in, in biblical Hebrew. But what I found was, and I did this through a combination of just reading about it and also seeking out some Jewish scholars who mm -hmm. were really thoughtful. In fact, I talk about one uh, in the book uh, yeah. that I went to see at, at Yale Divinity School. And what I found was is that, you know, we have a very uh, modern way of thinking about words and meaning in the 21st century. We're very much post-enlightenment thinkers. Uh, we're, we're people who have had access to dictionaries, for example, our whole lives. So when you think, what does this word mean? You think there is a meaning. It's a meaning that's set. It's a meaning that doesn't change, and I can go and find it. And so you can go to the dictionary and find out what a word means. But what a dictionary really does is it tells you not what a word means, but how a word is used. Yeah, yeah. And the ancient Jews uh, knew this. They knew that words are used in a certain way. That is their meaning. The meaning is how is a word used? What is the idea it, it is used to express? And that that changes over time. Every language, this happens in every language. There are 0, 0.00 exceptions. There's no language out there that has never changed or that language is dead. Every language will either change or it will die. And so ancient Jews knew this, and as a result, they, they encountered the text in a totally different way. You know, as I say in the book, the ancient rabbis, every sentence they visualized with a question mark at the end. It was an invitation to wrestle with these words, to peel back new layers of meaning. They believed every word had layers of meaning, including what it meant, what it means, and even meanings that we haven't discovered yet. Mm -hmm. And so they were okay with living in this tension that, that sort of allowed language to come alive, to kind of struggle with. Uh, the the meaning of words. And, you know, that's uh, a talk in the book about the practice of midrash, which is this practice of kind of filling in the gaps, uh, an imaginative way of reading the text. These days, uh, if you walked into your average church and you tried to engage the Bible in that way, people would become very, very uncomfortable. And yet, the, this is the way that our, the ancestors of our faith thought about language, the way they read the text, the way they interacted with the text, and God kept showing up again and again, generation after generation. Uh, today we have a much more rigid view mm -hmm. of words, and it's a relatively new way of understanding words that's not serving us very well. Well, I, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm grinning and laughing and cheering you on, even as you say that. Um, and, and you're not going to believe me, but um, I started a church with a few people four and a half years ago, and, and we really do midrash. Um, we, we teach what it is. We do Socratic method. And we, and we, we say the things like the Bible um, happened, is happening, and will happen. You know, things, and, and there are some people who absolutely love it, and there are lots of people who 
they just couldn't take it. Like it, it just felt too slippery to them. It felt oh. like you were playing fast and loose with the scriptures when really I think um, how, how I see Midrash and the Hebrew language, because there's really like I, I've heard Jonathan, maybe you know more than I do, but like there's only like 7,000 words in the Hebrew language. I mean, there's just much less. So every word has to do a whole lot more lifting essentially. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So do you see, how, how do you see that understanding as part of the way forward for us? In, in, well, in this day? it's, it's part of the way forward because so many of us are relating to the language of faith in a way that is suffocating speakers. Yeah. Chasing, chasing away doubters, mm. uh, shaming questioners, mm. and as a result, people have just stopped speaking it all together. There you go. Uh, we've 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 engaged uh, the language of faith not as a living language, which every language that is living is a living language. That's why it grows and changing, but sort of like um, like a, a mortician working yeah. on a corpse, Ugh. and. And then we wonder why, when we treat the Bible that way, why it feels like this dusty old dead book. Yeah. You know, the, the only time that you find this phrase, uh, the Word of God, referring to Scripture, is when the Bible describes it as the living yeah. Word of God. If your Bible is not alive, uh, growing, expanding, changing as you encounter it, then you might not be encountering the actual Word of God because the Word of God is alive. And so what I, what I think uh, we have to do is begin to think about the language of faith as a living language that requires us to tend to it, to interact with it, to wrestle with it, to rediscover it and reimagine it. And actually, if you study linguistics, what you realize is, is that's the only way that a language will live. Mm-hmm. If you treat a language like a kind of old, dusty, fixed artifact, it will disappear. It will vanish. And that happens every single time. They're, they're, you know, linguists are like pastors. They don't agree on a lot, but they will agree on one thing. Every language must change mm-hmm. and grow as the speakers change and grows. And if it does not, then it will die. Beautiful. Oh, I just couldn't agree more, Jonathan. Um, so good. Um, what are some words that you think have been so overused that they're just too familiar to even have any meaning anymore? And maybe they need to either morph or die. You know, there is a, um, there's a great quote. There's an old cliche first off that, you know, talks about, um, familiarity, um, breeds contempt. Mm-hmm. Um, but as Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard once said, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity yeah. and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. I remember there's that old book, um, uh, Philip Yancey wrote it called the Jesus you never knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is this idea that you've seen him so many times you don't even take notice anymore. So yeah. you don't really even notice Jesus. Jesus is just now a thing. Yeah. And for a lot of people, we're so familiar with these words. We've used them so often without stopping to think about what they mean or what they should mean that we don't know 
what they mean. I'll give you a great example. And I started, I started a little YouTube series on my YouTube channel where I would go down to Times Square and I would do like man on the street interviews. We're about halfway through it. We, we did the word sin. We did the word gospel. We'll do, I think next week we'll do the word grace. And so we have all of these where we ask people and you would not believe number one, some people who just don't know. Yeah. Number two, the people who think they know, there's as many answers as there are interviewees. And number three, even people who say, yes, I know, here's what it means. Then if you say, is that a word you use? Almost everyone will say no, Mm. they don't. Mm. So there is, I think, um, when you think some of these cornerstone words, even among Christians, if you go into most places, the word gospel is a great example. Gospel is a word and a particular faction of Christianity now, I think somehow has sort of deluded themselves into thinking they own that word. And they've changed it from a noun to an adjective. Yes. And they love to put it with a hyphen, right? It's like gospel centered this or gospel that, gospel this, gospel that. And it kind of, you know, they've, they've used it in a, in a certain way. And then there are other people who use it in a very different way. And then there are everybody who doesn't fit in with either of those groups who use it in their own way. And most people just don't know what it means. I mean, when I went down to Times Square and asked people, I was surprised how many people said gospel. You mean music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A lot of people just say music. It means music, you know? So based on your, your, uh, your race, your geography, your, your religious background, you might say it means music. Some people would just say preaching. Gospel, that means preaching. Yeah. Other people, you know, think that it has a very specific meaning, uh, you know, with like, you can almost outline it. It's like points, points in a, in a, uh, in a logical sort of progression. It means that this happened and this happened and now you have to do this and you have to do this. And so that's a word I would say, I mean, if we consider ourselves to be people of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and that Jesus came to, uh, preach the gospel and even be the gospel, Maybe this is a word we should start talking about uh, in these communities that that claim to follow Jesus and figure out what we think this word means. Yeah. Well, I think that's where Midrash really helps just to throw it back to that. I think to, to gather around a word and see its etymology and see where else it's used and see what the scriptures is trying to hint to when they put it here and when they put it there. I, I, I just think that's, that's the way to recapture uh, the beauty of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems to me too, and you, you alluded to this, that some of the words and gospel is a great example. It become uh, the, the litmus test boundary marker um, fence that, you know, if you say this word enough, then you're in our group. But if you don't believe a certain thing about it, then you're not in our group. And so it's a way of like defining who's in and who's out in terms of theological belief. Do you, do you find that? Yes. Um, I, I do find that that language can be sort of, um, signals. Yes. Uh, you know, road flares. They, they, they kind of say, this is what I'm a part of. Right. And gospel has become one of those things. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I did a, an interview recently with the people who run the Justice Conference. Mm-hmm. Justice is one of those words, and mm-hmm. it's been on a ski slope decline since mm-hmm. the late 1800s. It's had a little bit of a resurgence uh, lately, 
But based on the communities that you're in, there are words that you will speak a lot and words you speak not so much. I'll give you a great example. I, you know, I grew up in kind of an apologetic-centered uh, religious tradition. So we, we would not use a word like mystery very much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and yet, when the Bible says, here's what a Christian is. A Christian is a steward of the mysteries of God. <laughs> I claim to be a Christian, but I couldn't tell you what mystery had to do mm. with the life of faith. Mm. And so sometimes based on our traditions— because they're run by people who kind of uh, co-opt certain words for the, their own kind of formative purposes within the community, when we, become, when we come of age and we begin to stand outside of our tradition and critique that tradition, we realize that there are some words that we will now have to go and reimagine on our own because it's important language, but it's not language we have very much experience with. Yeah. Um, what are some words that you find yourself falling back in love with, uh, after writing this book and thinking about this so much? You know, I think that the, um, the word lost for me mm -hmm. was a big one. It's one of the last chapters mm -hmm. because the word lost in my upbringing was weaponized. Mm -hmm. So it was like, oh, you, you know, you can't hang out with her. Charlotte is lost. <laughs> or like, well, you know, Jim may tell you that's true, but he's lost. So what does he know? <laughs> and it also not only was it weaponized, but in some ways you would say uh, it really was also doing a lot of self-harm. Yeah. Because the more that I spoke about other people as lost, which was less than in some way, the more that it implied about me that I was found uh, and that I had been found because of something I really had done, I'd sort of, yeah, God found me, but I'd found myself. I'd sort of made my way out of all of that crazy lostness that Jim and Charlotte are still stuck in. And so it had a way of kind of puffing up, making me feel sort of prideful about myself, and it bred even a spiritual laziness. Well, if I'm found, What's my job? My yeah. job's just to go out and help other people, quote, be found. I, I'm not on a journey myself. Uh, I'm not lost. I don't need to. I, I've already gotten the thing that I need to get. I'm already on the other side of things. Now I just need to hopefully get other people to realize how uh, they need to believe like I believe and behave like I behave so that they will not be lost anymore. And now I've seen this as sort of an, a, a great leveler that uh, lost in some ways refers to all of us, that all of us in, in, in one way or another are lost. And this is the way uh, that Jesus talks about it. Of course, you know, the sinner's prayer, this notion of kind of a one and done conversion, that was not, you're, you're not going to find that in the New Testament. You're right. not going to find this kind of like, I prayed the prayer and that was that. Uh, you do have people who kind of join the Jesus way and they kind of get to into this, this movement. They jump into the stream and start swimming. But this notion that there was kind of this, like, you prayed a prayer, and now you're, you've kind of crossed over and you're done. There's no need for future conversion. Uh, that's, that's a very weird concept. But now that we've created that, we kind of read back onto the text 
uh, a certain notion of what lostness is, I think it's not a very good one. And as a result, now I'm able to use that term more, but more, more often than not, I use it to refer to myself than someone else. I love that. And actually, I love this chapter to you. You start off with, with the story about this uh, person who this critic who writes you an email and says, you know, based on this article you've written, I've concluded that you're lost. <laughs> You're like, what? Uh, but then you dove into it and you discovered what you just said, that that Jesus seems to call um, lots of people lost, people that it's not their fault that they're lost, um, people that have been responsible for the lostness of someone. Um, is, I just want to read a part of this because it's so good. Religious people, you write, often use the word lost to establish a hierarchy or a dividing line, but Jesus uses the story uses the term as a bulldozer to level the field. In this case, the lost includes the outsider and the insider. The lost includes the rule breaker and the rule follower. Talking about Luke 15 and, and, and those three parables. The lost includes those who may not even realize they're lost and those who wrongly assume they are found. So good. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is a word to be reclaimed and to find ourselves within so that we can break some of the dualism, right? Of I'm found, uh -huh. you're lost. And that's just so unhelpful, such an unhelpful and un-gospel centered, if you want to use that term, <laughs> un-gospel centered idea of, of how Jesus thought about it. So. Yep, I, I totally agree. And what you have to think about when you think about, hey, do I understand this word? Um, in, in a way that's, uh, that I should, in the way that I should. You can ask yourself not just like the kind of general questions that a dictionary reader would ask, which is, is this precise? Um, is this what it used to mean in the kind of sources that I find authoritative? But you can take it a step further and say, the way that I understand this word, as I use it this way to express what I feel or believe, and as I use it this way, which forms me spiritually, what kind of a person does that make me? Hmm. How does that shape me? How does that form me? If, if, you, if your understanding of the word loss, if you go out using the word loss in a particular way, and it makes you prideful, and it makes you an arrogant jerk who looks down on other people around you or pities hmm. people who don't believe like you or behave like you, it's, a, it's an indicator that uh, that maybe you're misusing this word. You know, mm -hmm. people often say, you know, Jesus said, you know, that a, a good tree bears good fruit. If you look at the context of that verse, it's talking about words. Yeah. It's not. It's not just talk. So, in other words, look at the fruit of your words. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Jesus said, if you want to, if you see bad, rotten fruit, there's only one conclusion: it's a bad, rotten root. And you have to deal with that, right? So there are a lot of people out here, and the way that we've used words like gospel or lost or sin as weapons to shame or scold or oppress or repress other people, what we're seeing there is Jesus's own teaching coming alive in front of our eyes, this really nasty, rotten fruit telling us that we should actually go back to the roots, the meanings the, the presuppositions of these words and think about them afresh. Mm -hmm. I love it. Um, okay, just a couple more questions. We're running out of time, but I, I love that you get into 
Richard Rohr calls it orientation, disorientation, reorientation. You might call it construction, deconstruction, reconstruction. Um, and you, you write about how it's sort of easy to get stuck on that second stage, disorientation, deconstruction, but that you're interested in, in the reconstruction in the, in, in the reorientation. Talk a little more about, about that and, and, and how that, uh, was, it, it seems like was a big fuel for this book. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, it's easy for different people different types of people who've been shaped in different types of ways to get stuck at different parts of this process. Uh, the way that I was raised, I got stuck on orientation. Yeah. The first thing, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's like, this is what I was taught. And there was a lot of fear mm-hmm. that, oh my gosh, one day someone may tell you that this isn't true. That person is not to be trusted. If you meet anybody who questions the things that I'm saying, don't, don't trust that person. You know, I can question what they say, but if they question what I say, you should be afraid of that person. Your orientation, your kind of base knowledge or understanding of the way the world is, was to be kind of locked in place and mm-hmm. guarded. And you, you were never to question that. There were certain questions you weren't allowed to ask. So you weren't able to say, for example, hey, you guys say that like a woman can't be a pastor. Um, but you know, if I read the Bible, the way that that leads to that conclusion, it also leads to a really kind of, um, post civil rights understanding of race. Hmm. So it doesn't seem to make sense to me. You know, you're going to be shown the door pretty quickly in those kinds of churches. Like you're just not allowed to ask those questions. It's like, I have told you what is true as a leader in this community, you should accept it and believe it, but mm-hmm. don't question it. So mm-hmm. there is no deconstruction. So conservatives, and it's, and it's all well-intentioned, out of a desire to hold on to the capital T truth, they get stuck right there in orientation and never move further. Mm-hmm. And they spend their lives sort of defending yep. uh, their orientation and also lamenting that the rest of the world has left them behind. Because mm-hmm. as the world has changed and people do this important work of deconstruction and reconstruction, people leave them behind. Mm-hmm. And they are sort of stuck in these old ways saying, well, not only am I the right one, I'm also the last one yeah. or among the last ones. And they kind of lament that. So you see this, uh, you know, in perpetuity. The, the liberal individuals tend to get stuck in that second phase. Yeah. They, they suddenly, something has taught them that... Um, maybe this belief they had was not true. And they start to go, okay, oh man, I can question the system now. Mm -hmm. And when they do, they pick everything apart and they deconstruct this thing and that's no good. And they kind of, you know, they've ripped it apart and they toss it aside and they rip another idea, a doctrine, a meaning apart. And that, that, that falls by the wayside. And before you know it, they're just left sitting in this pile of rubble of deconstructed beliefs and presuppositions, and they don't know what they believe. Yeah, uh, I know people who have engaged in this uh, deconstructive idolatry, mm-hmm. right? This idolatry of deconstructionism, where every, deconstruction is like the greatest good. It's an end rather than a means. And as a result, all, I mean, like I think of some of my friends who ended in this, 90% of them are now post-Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe the other 10% are some kind of part of like an avant-garde wing of the Episcopal Church. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's not a bad thing. I'm just, uh, you know, the, 
it's just like you can see where these these kind of things lead. And it's not because deconstruction is bad. See, what the conservative will say is the conservative will look at the liberal who's now post-Christian and say, see, that's where deconstruction will lead you. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's where deconstruction will lead you if that's the end. Right. But it's not the end. That's the middle. Yeah. There is another end, and that other end is reconstruction. And that's there's a hopefulness to that yep. where you begin to rebuild. You say, you know what, here's how I understood sin or hell or truth or the Bible or conversion or whatever. And here's how then the deconstruction says, here's how that isn't working so well yeah. for me yeah. or for women or for gay people or for black people or for refugees or for poor people, and you begin to critique the way that, that, that these meanings have not served you or, or another community outside of your own community well, or uh, this, is, this is the way that this word has presented God as not exactly a loving, good uh, being. Mm-hmm. And that's good, important work. But then the next step is, what would it look like to reimagine this word, this this kind of core concept in a way that would be life-giving and not soul-sucking, in a way that would be uh, an instrument of liberation and not imprisonment, and and to rebuild the faith uh, and the language of faith. That's a it's a daunting task. It is a difficult task. Uh, not a lot of people are doing it, so it's a it's a lonely task. But it is the only way, I think to sort of live into a more fully and uh, fully matured faith and a corresponding vocabulary that that will help you to bring that faith to life. Yeah, exactly. And it, it goes back to what you were saying about a living language. Language has to be alive. It has to keep morphing and changing and becoming just like human beings do and just like our, our understanding of God and just like our understanding of the Bible, it has to keep morphing and growing and changing if God is infinite and if God is in some ways mystery, which I love what Richard Rohr says, that that mystery is not something we can't understand, it's something we endlessly understand, then yeah, we, we, we better be, we better continue to keep working. We, you know, keep reconstructing and then deconstruct again. So, um, so good, man. Okay. Last question. Last question. If we're going to talk about language, uh, is the word evangelical done? Well, you know, um, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, evangelicalism is dead. Long lived evangelicalism. That's sort of the, it's like every time I turn around and I've been, I've been a, a party to this. Yeah. Uh, over the last 10 or 20 years, if I have read or written a, uh, you know, religious right is dead piece, mm-hmm. it is like, but, and yet here we are, mm-hmm. here we are again, 20 years later, mm-hmm. it's not dead. And in fact, it helped elect the last president of the United States. Mm-hmm. So what happened there? Mm-hmm. Uh, evangelicalism is a helpful label in terms of its definition. I wrote a piece for The Atlantic, a column, called What Does Evangelical Mean Anyway? And I and when you think about that definition, I kind of fit into that definition. Uh, but the meaning of a word is not just definition, it's also connotation. Yeah. 
And the connotation of the word evangelical has now been so soured. So the question is, is should we call ourselves something else? Uh, those of us who technically fit the definition but don't love the connotation of the word, um, I guess you could. Um, I, I also think that there are benefits to kind of sticking around. Mm -hmm. Because if you think evangelicalism is bad now, well, then just take anyone that you consider to be uh, not part of the problem and move them outside of the boundaries of the mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. You're going to see it's gonna, it's, it will actually accelerate it. Mm -hmm. So I think that when it comes to that label, it's really a, a, a personal question. I don't yeah. think there's like a hard and fast rule. But do you feel, you know, should you stay or should you go? Some people I think go, it just makes me sick mm -hmm. and I'm out of here. Other people, I think, feel called to stay and to to be part of the remnant that kind of calls back some of the nastier expressions uh, of evangelicals. But I would say as a term, it's probably more nebulous, less descriptive and um, less positive than it has ever been in modern parlance. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, Jonathan, this, this was so enriching. I loved the conversation. I wish we had more time. Uh, everybody uh, just, so go to the show notes. I'm going to put the link to the book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them, Jonathan Merritt. I'm also going to put uh, on the show notes a link to your YouTube channel so people can take a look at those Times Square uh, interviews. I think that'll be fascinating. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link to your article that you just mentioned, what does evangelical mean anyway? And um, are there any other ways that uh, people can read your stuff and uh, get in touch with what you do? You know, um, one of the best ways is just to go to my website because you'll find all of my social media there. You'll find articles that I've written there. You'll find uh, links to just about anything that, that you want uh, there. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter. So I send out like the five most important stories that you should know every week, five top faith and culture stories um, to keep people from having to like sift through the news. And so you can do that there as well. So it's, I'd say that's kind of my like, one-stop shop, yeah. if you will. That's great. Okay, we'll put that on the show notes as well, uh, jonathanmerritt.com. And uh, thanks so much, man. This was just as, just as good as I, as I hoped it would be. Uh, the book is, is beautiful. Uh, it's so well-written. And, um, and talking to you was, was uh, so much fun. I uh, hope we can, we can connect in person uh, at some point in the next year or so. And uh, I, I, I will try to find a, uh, a way to make it out to New York. Uh, that would be fun. That would be yeah, come, fun. you so. come down here and we'll have a good time. That'd be great. And if not, I'll be out to see you. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. 
And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.